This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 2. Section 18. But with respect to the books of the New Testament, particularly such parts as tell us of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, any person who could tell a story of an apparition or of a man's walking could have made such books, for the story is most wretchedly told. The chance, therefore, of forgery in the New Testament is millions to one greater than in the case of Homer or Euclid. Of the numerous priests or parsons of the present day, bishops and all, every one of them can make a sermon or translate a scrap of Latin, especially if it had been translated a thousand times before. But is there any among them that can write poetry like Homer or science like Euclid? The sum total of a person's learning, with very few exceptions, is A, B, a, B, and Hick, Heck, Hock, and their knowledge of science is three times one is three, and this is more than sufficient to have enabled them, had they lived at the time, to have written all books of the New Testament. As the opportunities of four trees were greater, so also was the inducement. A man could gain no advantage by writing under the name of Homer or Euclid. If he could write equal to them, it would be better that he wrote under his own name. If inferior, he could not succeed. Pride would prevent the former and impossibility the latter. But with respect to such books as compose the New Testament, all the inducements were on the side of forgery. The best imagined history that could have been made at the distance of two or three hundred years after the time could not have passed for an original under the name of the real writer. The only chance of success lay in forgery, for the church wanted pretense for its new doctrine, and truths and talents were out of the question. But, as is not uncommon, as before observed, to relate stories of persons walking after they are dead, and of ghosts and apparitions of such as have fallen by some violent or extraordinary means. And as the people of that day were in the habit of believing such things, and of the appearance of angels, and also of devils, and of their getting into people's insides and shaking them like a fit on an ague, and of their being cast out again as if by an emetic, Mary Magdalene, the book of Mark tells us, has brought up or been brought to bed of seven devils. It was nothing extraordinary that some story of this kind should get abroad of the person called Jesus Christ and become afterward the foundation of the four books ascribed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each writer told the tale as he heard it or thereabouts and gave to his book the name of the saint or the apostle whom tradition had given as the eyewitness. It is only upon this ground that the contradiction in those books can be accounted for, and if this be not the case,
they are downright impositions, lies and forgeries, without even the apology of credulity, that they have been written by a sort of half-Jews, as the foregoing quotations mention, is discernible enough. The frequent references made to that chief assassin and impostor, Moses, and to the men called prophets, establish this point. And on the other hand, the Church has complemented the fraud by admitting the Bible and the Testament to reply to each other. Between the Christian Jew and the Christian Gentile, the thing called a prophecy and the thing prophesied, the type and the thing typified, the sign and the thing signified, have been industriously rummaged up and fitted together like old locks and picklock keys. The story foolishly enough told of Eve and the serpent, and naturally enough as to the enmity between men and serpents, for the serpent always bites about the heel because it cannot reach higher, and the man always knocks the serpent about the head as the most effectual way to prevent its biting. Footnote. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. End footnote. This foolish story, I say, has been made into a prophecy, a type, and a promise to begin with, and the lying imposition of Isaiah to Ahaz, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, as a sign that Ahaz should conquer, when the event was that he was defeated, as already noticed in the observations on the book of Isaiah, has been perverted and made to serve as a winder-up. Jonah and the whale are also made into a sign or a type. Jonah is Jesus, and the whale is the grave, for it is said, and they have made Christ to say it of himself, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But it happens, awkwardly enough, that Christ, according to their own account, was but one day and two nights in the grave, about thirty-six hours, instead of seventy-two. That is, the Friday night, the Saturday, and the Saturday night. For they say he was up on the Sunday morning by sunrise, or before. But as this fits quite well as the bite and the kick in Genesis, or the virgin and her son in Isaiah, it will pass in the lump of orthodox things. Thus much for the historical part of the Testament and its evidences. Epistles of Paul The epistles ascribed to Paul, being fourteen in number, almost fill up the remaining part of the testament. Whether those epistles were written by the person to whom they are ascribed is a matter of no great importance, since the writer, whoever he was, attempts to prove his doctrine by argument. He does not pretend to have been witness to any of the scenes told of the resurrection and the ascension, and he declares that he had not believed them. The story of his being struck to the ground as he was journeying to Damascus has nothing in it miraculous or extraordinary. He escaped with life, 
and that is more than many others have done, who have been struck with lightning, and that he should lose his sight for three days, and be unable to eat or drink during that time, is nothing more than is common in such conditions. His companions that were with him appear not to have suffered in the same manner, for they were well enough to lead him the remainder of the journey. Neither did they pretend to have seen any vision. The character of the person called Paul, according to the accounts given of him, has in it a great deal of violence and fanaticism. He had persecuted with as much heat as he preached afterward. The stroke he had received had changed his thinking without altering his constitution, and either as a Jew or a Christian, he was the same zealot. Such men are never good moral evidences of any doctrine they preach. They are always in extremes, as well of actions as of belief. The doctrine he sets out to prove by argument is the resurrection of the same body, and he advances this as an evidence of immortality. But so much will men differ in their manner of thinking, and in the conclusions they draw from the same premises, that this doctrine of the resurrection of the same body, so far from being an evidence of immortality, appears to me to furnish an evidence against it. For if I have already died in this body, and am raised again in the same body in which I have lived, it is a presumptive evidence that I shall die again. That resurrection no more secures me against the repetition of dying than an ague fit, when past, secures me against another. To believe, therefore, in immortality, I must have a more elevated idea than is contained in the gloomy doctrine of the resurrection. Besides, as a matter of choice, as well as of hope, I had rather have a better body and a more convenient form than the present. Every animal in the creation excels us in something. The winged insects, without mentioning doves or eagles, can pass over more space and with greater ease in a few minutes than man can in an hour. The glide of the smallest fish, in proportion to its bulk, exceeds us in motion almost beyond comparison and without weariness. Even the sluggish snail can ascend from the bottom of a dungeon, where a man, by the want of that ability, would perish, and a spider can launch itself from the top as a playful amusement. The personal powers of man are so limited, and his heavy frame so little constructed to extensive enjoyment, that there is nothing to induce us to wish the opinion of Paul to be true. It is too little for the magnitude of the scene, too mean for the sublimity of the subject. But all other arguments apart, the consciousness of existence is the only conceivable idea we can have of another life, and the continuance of that consciousness is immortality. The consciousness of existence, or the knowing that we exist, is not necessarily confined to the same form, nor to the same matter, even in this life. We have not in all cases the same form, nor in any case the same matter that composed our bodies twenty or thirty years ago, and yet we are conscious of being the same persons.
even legs and arms, which make up almost half the human frame, are not necessary to the consciousness of existence. These may be lost or taken away, and the full consciousness of existence remain, and were their place supplied by wings or other appendages, we cannot conceive that it would alter our consciousness of existence. In short, we know not how much, or rather how little, of our composition it is, and how exquisitely fine that little is, that creates in us this consciousness of existence, and all beyond that is like the pulp of a peach, distinct and separate from the vegetative speck in the kernel. Who can say by what exceedingly fine action of fine matter it is that a thought is produced in what we call the mind? And yet that thought, when produced, as I now produce the thought I am writing, is capable of becoming immortal, and is the only production of man that has that capacity. Statues of brass or marble will perish, and statues made in imitation of them are not the same statues, nor the same workmanship, any more than the copy of a picture is the same picture. But print and reprint a thought a thousand times over, and that with materials of any kind, carve it in wood or engrave it on stone. The thought is eternally and identically the same thought in every case. It has a capacity of unimpaired existence, unaffected by change of matter, and is essentially distinct and of a nature different from everything else that we know or can conceive. If, then, the thing produced has in itself a capacity of being immortal, it is more than a token that the power that produced it, which is the self-same thing as consciousness of existence, can be immortal also, and that, as independently of the matter it was first connected with, as the thought is of the printing or writing it first appeared in. The one idea is not more difficult to believe than the other, and we can see that one is true that the consciousness of existence is not dependent on the same form or the same matter is demonstrated to our senses in the works of the creation. As far as our senses are capable of receiving that demonstration, a very numerous part of the animal creation preaches to us, far better than Paul, the belief of a life hereafter. Their little life resembles an earth and a heaven, a present and a future state, and comprises, if it may be so expressed, immortality in miniature. End of section 18